You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. People were hoping that someone would get something out of Nixon that he didn't want to give. And of course, we in the end, with the mayor Cooper and everything, got even more than we'd been hoping for. TV talk show host and interviewer David Frost. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Now, if you came to Now I've Heard Everything today expecting to hear my interview from 1993 with Ralph Nader, uh, just suffice to say we had some technical issues, and that interview is no longer available. I apologize, but I think you'll like what we have in store for you anyway. David Frost enjoyed a successful, decades-long career as a television interviewer, TV talk show host in both the UK and the US. He interviewed Thousands of VIPs, celebrities, world leaders, the the big and the powerful, the rich, the famous, everybody. But David Frost will probably be best remembered for his 1977 series of interviews with former President Richard M. Nixon, who just three years earlier had resigned in disgrace after the Watergate scandal. Now, Frost paid Nixon some $600,000 for those interviews, but they paid off big time because they not only became a part of American history, American television history, but they also helped rehabilitate Richard Nixon. I met David Frost some 30 years after those interviews when he wrote a book called Frost Nixon, in which he offered kind of a behind-the-scenes account of how the interviews came about, what happened after the cameras stopped rolling, So here now from 2007, David Frost. You have written before about the Nixon interviews. What new did you want to bring to the table with this book? Well, obviously there was a lot of material that we couldn't use from from the past interviews, so that there was new material in the actual interviews themselves. But but in addition to that, two particular new ingredients were, in fact three, um, were first of all, a whole chapter on how Nixon set about in retirement trying to uh, regain his position in society and so on, and to a certain extent certainly succeeded. But so that Nixon's retirement and how he he really campaigned for respectability again uh, throughout that. And then finally the reassessment of Richard Nixon 30 years later as a president, which has lots of surprising things in it, like, for instance, that his record on race was probably better than any president who has, who has followed him. I mean, and we didn't realize that at the time. We all, because he didn't do the, uh, the civil rights um, marches or that sort of thing, but he did it quietly behind the scenes, he got a hell of a lot got a hell of a lot done and that really really was a surprise really as we were as we were going through working on it so it's Nixon in retirement that's post the interviews 77 and Nixon a reassessment and then we thought it'd be interesting to add for people some of the key transcripts which haven't been published before the whole of the Watergate uh, confrontation as as broadcast and then other ones like the Houston plan and when he said those memorable words about, well, if the president does it, that means it's not illegal, you know. And uh, and and then in addition to that, Chile, which was very funny about the red sandwich and so on, and the relationship between uh, Nixon and Kissinger and so on. So those things as transcripts, they're all new in the sense of not being available before. 
To you and I, this is still current events, but to an entire generation, this is now history. Are you beginning to see it as history through their eyes? <clears throat> That's a very interesting thought. I mean, I think the interesting thing that when Peter Morgan, the author of the play and the film, um, came to see me to ask if I would grant him the, the, the rights to do this, um, he was very clear at that time that he had no fears about it being difficult to make it seem current and relevant. And that's really what he did. And he achieved that knowing that in the period since Richard Nixon, a number of uh, other politicians have followed Nixonian principles and uh, been economical with the actuality, as uh, one uh, British civil servant said. Um, and, and therefore, it feels current. It, it doesn't feel like history yet. Um, it still feels part of the current world in a way. And that, I think that's one of the, the immediacy of it was surprising. But, but Peter Morgan was clear from the word go that that would be no problem. There are many who look at the presidency of George W. Bush and kind of long for the days of Richard Nixon. <laughs> well, yes, I don't. I don't know. Well, possibly, possibly they long for, or well, maybe long for a different, different. It just seems so quaint. I, I find, yeah, I find, I find when I interviewed George W. Bush, um, that he was much quicker and uh, more on the ball than than you would believe from any of the columns, you know, and and, and came out with swift answers and so on. At one point, I said to him, uh, you know, people say that you feel so strongly about the war on terror that you'd rather lose to the Democrats than lose to the terrorists. And he said very quickly, well, I'd rather not lose to either. Now, I'm not saying that's William Shakespeare or anything, but, but, but it's a fast reply, a good reply to a question he couldn't have anticipated, and, and just showed that he was, in that sense, sharper than he was depicted. Well, you are in a unique position to assess the relative strengths and weaknesses of not only every U.S. president in the last 40 years, but every British prime minister in the last 40 years. Where do you rate Nixon on, on those two lists? Well, there were two, alas, Steppenwolf and so on, there were two Richard Nixons, weren't there? There was the good Nixon and the bad Nixon. And, and the good Nixon, his race record... Um, his negotiations with big power, big plays between China and Russia and those things, um, and, and things, and, and his intellect. I mean, his, his, he had probably had one of the highest IQs of any, although IQ is no guarantee of, a, of success, as we know. Um, but uh, judgment is more important than an IQ, I think, for a president. And, uh, but, but, uh, so, there were good things about, but in the end, the, the, the bad Nixon, the darker side of Nixon, won out in the end, or the darker group of associates won out over the brighter group of the, the associates, won out in the end. So that basically, at the end of the day, you'd have to say, as I said at the end of an epilogue of the original book about you know a sad man who so wanted to be great and so on and so forth, and that, and that in fact, in the end, the things... I'm sure partially that paranoia that he had in part. One one point he said, you, you may say I'm paranoid, but, but uh, yes, you may say I'm, uh, I'm paranoid, but paranoia for peace 
is no bad thing. And by the next day, all of his team and my team had buttons saying, paranoics for peace. And as someone else pointed out, even a paranoid does have real enemies. That's right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you tell us in, the, in your book, Frost Nixon, uh, that leading up to the, the, to the interviews, that, uh, and I forget which of his aides was adamant that the 60% of his presidency that was positive and that worked and it did good things, that if you didn't get that 60% right, this aide had told you, he was going to ruin you if it took the rest of his life. That's right. That's right. It was a friendlier conversation. And, uh, and it was early on before the thing got underway. When we got underway, we, we had a better, a better relationship uh, a reasonable relationship, a good relationship with their team, as it were, his team. But beforehand, when we were really battling for our lives, in a way, to get the, uh, to get the Watergate stuff taped in time and all of those things. He had a good joke there, though, Nixon. I mean, he, when I was saying, we have to do this Watergate interview in March because uh, that means we get it on the air in May, whereas if we don't do that, it won't go on the air until August. And uh, advertisers will know that they won't get very big audiences in uh, August. And Nixon said, we got a hell of an audience on August the 9th, 1974, you know, the, the moment of resignation. And, uh, and that was a good, a good Nixon guy. Didn't you come back with, well, what do you do for an encore? That's right. Oh, yes. Thank you for remembering my line. Yes, ab ab absolutely. Yes, yes. <laughs> well read, well read, well remembered. What well, a thoughtful man we're talking to here. We're talking with Bill Thompson, ladies and gentlemen. After this short break, what David Frost understood the historical significance of his interviews to be. Now back to my 2007 conversation with David Frost. The amount of preparation it takes to interview an author about a book pales by, the comparison, by comparison to the preparation that you and your team did in preparing for these interviews. I mean, this, this was, I mean, you recognized the historical value. If you didn't get this right, this would have been a lost opportunity forever. Yes, it would have been a lost opportunity forever, and it would have been a personal disaster, actually. I mean, uh, because people were hoping that someone would get something out of Nixon that he didn't want to give. And, of course, we, in the end, with the mayor Cooper and everything, got, got uh, even more than we'd been hoping for. Um, but but it would, as you say, it would have been an awful missed opportunity if, if not, and uh, and and that it would have been an extreme embarrassment as as well. And uh, and so getting that, and and I mean, and getting the two Nixons. I mean, I went to see him to say thank you, goodbye. We're leaving because we'd edited the the uh, first two pro programs that have gone out and the two that hadn't gone out, and. Uh, and then there was a relaxed Nixon. There was almost for 20 minutes, there was a carefree Nixon. And the word carefree is never used about Richard Nixon. Because, you know, he's, he was always affable. And, I mean, he wasn't rude or anything. But you always felt there was a barrier between him and whoever he was talking to. And, and that he was not exactly hiding behind that, but protected by it. In the end, he thought the interviews were tough but fair. Yes, that was a compliment in a way, I suppose, because when Nixon was in office, anybody who was 
tough was automatically, any journalist who was tough was automatically deemed unfair and likely to end up on an enemy's list or something like that. So, so I suppose the fact that he argued a certain mellowing in Nixon that he could say somebody could be tough but fair. Uh, the, the only amusing PS to that was that in a book about 20 years later, he went back to the old Nixon and said that, you know, it was tough and it was unfair and so on. But overall, for... 20 years, he, he said it was tough but fair. Do you think in the end he recognized that it was the kind of uh, catharsis that he needed at that time? It was the catharsis he needed, and, so on, and, and, and in a sense the American audience, the American public, needed as well. And um, I think probably if you'd gone to Richard Nixon four or five months afterwards, he would have regretted that he'd ever done it because he had admitted so much more than he planned to admit. And I think at that point he probably regretted it. Then, two or three years later, when largely as a result of the fact that he had faced up to these issues in a forum which he clearly did not control, that had actually dispelled some of the black clouds over him and so on. And probably enabled him to, as it were, re-enter polite society. So that maybe after that he would have then come to the conclusion that he was glad that he had made a clean breast of it. Well, he, he needed a vehicle such as your interviews with him to clear the way. I mean, he became a very best-selling author. His views were respected. Would that have happened as easily were it not for your interviews? No, I don't think, I don't think unless he had confronted these issues as he did in the interviews in some other forum, um, no, it would, it, would, it would never have happened. And as you're right, I mean, in the, just at the end of the, the, the drama of the final, final things, he's, he's talking that I can, you know, I, yep, I let down the American people and I have to carry that burden with me for the rest of my life. Um, I can no longer serve in public office. Maybe I can give a little advice from time to time. Now, when he said those words in 1977, maybe I can give a little advice from time to time, people thought, rubbish who's, who's going to want advice from him and it was only with the passage of the years that in fact as you said the books came thudding out and he was giving advice to all and sundry you know so that that does show a certain progression in what he was able to do and maybe more to the point they were taking the advice they were they were taking them they were listening to the advice and and they were they're better still from his point of view i suppose they were buying the books <laughs> You've interviewed so many people over the years. You've been a successful television host for so many years, well-known in, in all these fields. But yet you, when the day eventually comes, which we hope is many years in the future, and your obituary is written, in the lead will be that you interviewed Richard Nixon in this, in this uh, historical series. Does that in any way dismay you that that is what you will be best known for? Well, there may be another one as big as that to come and, and s smaller ones and, and ones that are very memorable in other ways. I mean, the interview with General Schwarzkopf after the uh, first Gulf War, that made, that was one interview, but it made four continuous days of, of, um, of front pages and so on. So there are other things. But no, I'd be quite, I'd be quite happy if, if Nixon's, in the, Nixon's in the headlines um, because it was a huge undertaking. It was a big risk financially and and in terms of reputation and so on. And the fact that it, it turned out... Um, there's the other thing that 
I wouldn't mind his obituary, which was John Smith, the former Labour leader who died quite young in England. And the last time he was on my programme, he said afterwards, David, you have a way of asking beguiling questions with potentially lethal consequences. I said, well, I wouldn't mind having that on my coffin. The two things side by side. David Frost died in 2013. He was 74. And you can get a copy of Frost Nixon by David Frost by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also hear my 1991 interview with one of the central figures in Watergate, G. Gordon Liddy. I would not have gone to prison for John Dean. I would uh, go to prison for my president anytime. I was being led to believe that I was doing this for the president. The president didn't even know about it. And my 1995 conversation with the editor of the Washington Post, Ben Bradley. You know, without Richard Milhouse Nixon, I probably wouldn't be right here. You wouldn't have uh, been interested in me or my memoirs. He propelled all of us at the Post onto the public stage. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on every major podcast platform. Thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman whose last name was actually very appropriate for the position that she held, she was a woman in a man's world of filmmaking in Hollywood. My 1993 interview with... Dawn Steele. When Leonard Maltin or Siskel and Liebert didn't like one of my movies, I took it as though they didn't like one of my children. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. David Frost died in 2013. He was 74. And you can get a copy of Frost Nixon by David Frost by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also hear my 1991 interview with one of the central figures in Watergate, G. Gordon Liddy. I would not have gone to prison for John Dean. I would uh, go to prison for my president anytime. I was being led to believe that I was doing this for the president. The president didn't even know about it. And my 1995 conversation with the editor of the Washington Post, Ben Bradley. You know, without Richard Milhouse Nixon, I probably wouldn't be right here. You wouldn't have uh, been interested in me or my memoirs. He propelled all of us at the Post onto the public stage. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on every major podcast platform. Thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman whose last name was actually very appropriate for the position that she held, she was a woman in a man's world of filmmaking in Hollywood. My 1993 interview with... Dawn Steele. When Leonard Maltin or Siskel and Liebert didn't like one of my movies, I took it as though they didn't like one of my children. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.